you bring the crowns and heads of conquered kings to my city steps. You insult my queen. You threaten my people with slavery and death. Oh, I've chosen my words carefully, Persian. Perhaps you should have done the same. This is blasphemy. This is madness. Madness. This is... Countries that don't exist anymore. They used to exist, but not anymore. Now you know what this podcast is for. It's countries that don't exist anymore. When was Sparta around? From the 900s to 192 BC, though it reached the peak of its power in 404 BC after a defeat of its main Greek rival, Athens. But who were the Spartans? They called themselves the Lacedaemons. It was said that Sparta was founded by a king called Lacedaemon, a son of Zeus. He named his kingdom after himself just to make the historical records neat, and it sounds plausible. After all, we all know that Great Britain was named after 18th century Union Jack salesman Dave Great Britain. In reality, the Spartans were part of the Dorian people, who turned up in the area in the 3rd century BC, arriving from the north. Now, they were supposed to be one of the four major ethnic groups that formed the ancient Greek identity, along with the Ionians, who settled around Athens, the Achaeans in Patras, and the Aeolians, who invented mayonnaise. What kind of government did the Spartans have? Almost uniquely, they had two kings. We're leaders to The kings of Sparta were said to descend from Heracles, or Hercules, ultimate manly man, slayer of critically endangered monsters, and Zeus's backstairs bastard. But why two? One king would lead the Spartans in battle, and the other would hold the fort at home to keep things all stable-like. But these kings weren't some absolutist power mongers, since the king shared power with five elected officials called Ephors. Phil, did you just bleep me? I will not have filthy, dirty blue language on my show. No, f***ers. Right, give me that bleep button, you. I like that bleep button. So there were the effers. Better. Then there was another popular assembly and the Garuja. The Garuja were like a council of elders, all of whom were over 60. Sort of like a House of Lords or a Joe Bidenocracy. But these weren't layabout geriatrics. In fact, Spartans were required to stay in fighting condition until the age of 60. So, despite hating democracy and being proactive about stamping it out wherever it popped up, the Spartans weren't as absolutely unrepresentative as they like to pretend. As long as you were a male Spartan citizen, of course, of which there were not that many. But we'll come to that. The Spartans thought that their unique military society setup came from someone called Lycurgus. Who was Lycurgus? Lycurgus, or Lycurgus, or Lycurgus, or whatever. Well, whatever his name was, he was probably made up, not least because his name means wolf work. But he was said to have been Sparta's lawgiver. He set up the whole system and gave Sparta its key virtues, equality among citizens, military fitness and personal austerity, virtues that the British upper class of the 19th century would look to fondly. Well, except for the equality bit and the personal austerity and, from the looks of their red-faced, gouty, pear-shaped English aristocracy, the military fitness aspect too. 
Societies throughout history generally make up easy-to-remember stories about themselves, and rather than saying, our laws and customs evolved in a complicated process over time, you can just say, that guy did it. Where was Sparta? To answer this question, we've uninstalled the useless Mappatron 3000 that we had running in Series 1, and we've installed Mappo, the helpful geographical voice assistant. Let's give this baby a whirl. Hi, Mappo. Hi, Ed. What can I do for you today? See, now this is worth the £19.99 per month subscription. Mappo, where was Sparta? Did you say where was Sparta? No, where was Sparta? Got it. Ordering you spark plugs. £79.99 will be charged to your highest interest credit card. No, cancel, cancel! Nigel Mansell was a British Formula One driver who won five Grand Prix in 1986. Oh, for b- sake! Ed, leave this to me, leave this to me. Mappo, what is the weather like tomorrow in Ipswich? Sparta is located in the region of Laconia in the southeastern Peloponnese. Ancient Sparta was built on the banks of the Eurotas River, the largest river of Laconia, which provided it with a source of fresh water. Ah, you see, Ed, you just have to be patient, like a good pal. Got it. Opening PayPal and subscribing to the Mail Online. Hmm. Yeah, unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. In countries that don't exist anymore, we've covered countries that tried to be countries with things like an executive and money and a flag and all that good tangible stuff that countries are made out of. But Sparta was something different. It was a polis. And if you're thinking, I hate the polis, chances are you're from Glasgow. Polis means a citizen state. So its people were the city, which is convenient because Sparta really didn't do cities. Unlike other Greek powers like Athens, they didn't spend their time building grand cities and fancy buildings. Despite being one of the most dominant powers of ancient Greece, they preferred small settlements without walls. But why didn't Spartans like walls? On a practical level, Sparta spent most of its history not needing them. Their country fertile Eurotas Valley was rarely invaded. Wars were things that happened somewhere else, and in fact they even viewed walls as effeminate. Spartan lawgiver Lysurgus referred to Sparta as having a wall of men instead of bricks. I mean, you could have both. When red-blooded Trump supporters yelled, Build that wall! Build that wall! Build that wall! A Spartan would have thought them a bunch of lily-livered perfumed punsters. In fact, when Sparta defeated the Greeks during the Peloponnesian War, one of their demands was that Athens knock down its dirty, cheating, girly walls. Now, you said girly like it was a bad thing. Am Mm. I to take it that the Spartans were a super macho culture? Oh, yes. So I guess Spartan women also had a pretty rough time of it. Uh, You see, that's where things aren't quite what you'd expect. Over in democratic, progressive Athens, women were basically under house arrest. They were completely uneducated, married off at 12, and then basically never seen again. In Athenian culture, women were not seen and not heard, and that included wealthy women. Whereas in Sparta, things couldn't have been more different. You see, Spartan men were full-time soldiers. That meant that their wives more or less handled everything else. At the market and on the street, they dominated day-to-day life. 
and could do things which would have been scandalous in other Greek city-states, like riding horses, literacy, owning property and amassing wealth. Spartan women could have clout and influence. Wow, so Spartans were actually woke feminists. Oh no, they were chauvinists. Uh. Spartan women were seen as glorified baby makers, but because they were expected to produce healthy Spartan soldiers, they were expected to be in peak physical condition, which meant... Wednesday night Zumba? No, wrestling, athletics, dancing, and a brilliant game where they had to jump in the air and try to kick themselves in the arse. These women were so tough, they literally kicked their own asses. Exactly. Plus, girls were fed the same rations as boys, but without having to do the harsh training to be a warrior stuff that the boys went through. It's like when I was at school and we were made to play rugby on frozen pitches in winter gales while the girls were allowed to watch videos in their heated sports hall. God, no, girls have it so easy, don't they, Ed? Yeah, yeah, they yeah. bloody well do. Yeah, I mean, apart from all the centuries of repression and inequality still today. Yeah, but on the other hand, they get the heated sports hall. Well, exactly. So, that's the surprising life of Spartan women, by no means chillin' Germaine Greer style, but they had freedoms that other Greek women just didn't. And the cherry on top of the cake was no domestic drudgery, since housework and cooking was done by helot slaves, leaving women much more time to themselves. Not too shabby. Athenian philosopher Aristotle even called Sparta a gynecocracy, a state ran by women. <laughs> I mean, it definitely wasn't, but it's a classic Twitter overreaction. I think women should be equal to men. You know, you know, man, these neo-Marxist feminists are the same ideology that leads to communist Russia being sent to the gulag. This is serious, man. Yeah, so that's basically how Spartan females had it. But what about Spartan males? I'm guessing childhood, a gap year to figure stuff out, and then an internship at Uncle Leonidas's olive farm. Eh, sort of, but no. First of all, boys were born and were lucky to survive much past that. The infant mortality rate was high in those days. Yes, it was, but especially when you're chucking babies into chasms. What?! Uh, that's right. If there was any perceived imperfection or weakness in the infant, it was curtains for baby. I know this sounds insanely cruel, but it wasn't an uncommon practice in Greece for parents to leave unwanted babies in the wilderness. But generally babies were put in baskets or pots in places well known to be a good spot for abandoned babies. Just because you couldn't look after your baby, it didn't mean that no one else would. You could leave a baby and hope it would get picked up by a childless couple or a female wolf and go on to establish the city of Rome. But the Spartan tradition was supposed to be much more extreme. Unwanted babies were apparently thrown into a chasm called the Place of Rejection. Ooh, bummer. Yeah, sounds a bit final. But if you were one of these lucky ones to pass the not getting thrown into a chasm ordeal, things didn't look that much brighter. For the first seven years, you were raised at home, probably not smothered in love, though. And then when you were seven, you were sent off to the Agogi, an extreme Spartan training regime that sought to turn young boys into well-drilled killing machines. Boys were organised into the Broi, which means a herd of cattle, led by an older boy called a boy herd, who was in charge of discipline and punishment. It's a bit like an English boarding school system, except with 20% more killing. Each child was issued with a red cloak and starvation rations, and so was expected to survive by stealing food. But if you were caught stealing, you were punished. 
For stealing? No, for being caught stealing. And if that happened, you were flogged. Do you want to raise a merciless psychopath? Then maybe you should enrol your child in the Spartan School for Boys. We take the R out of heart and turn it into the R of heartless bastard. Did you know that the last two Spartan Prime Ministers went to Spartan School for Boys? And look at them, sociopathic maniacs. So send your child to Spartan School for Boys, if you hadn't already thrown them into a chasm. Spartan School for Boys, where kids become killers and maniacs are made. The most promising, i.e. worst boys, joined the Cryptea, who were a set of particularly psychotic kidlets who were each given a knife and sent into the mountains. By day, they hid out of sight. By night, they were sent out to hunt and murder helots. Oh, by the way, the helots were communities of slave people that the Spartans kept in line by setting terrifying children upon them. That sounds horrific. Yes, and the Spartans would punish them in other ways. For example, the Spartans really frowned on getting drunk and drank highly watered down wine, but they'd make the helots get drunk just to show each other how a Spartan shouldn't behave. That sounds not as bad, actually. I mean, free booze would sure smooth the rough edges of that murder thing. But I'll come back to the poor helot shortly. Let's finish the story of the poor Spartan boys first. These boys were tested constantly and not uncommonly tested to death. A boy's upbringing was brutal. When they were 12, they were sent to an altar full of cheese. The challenge was to steal as much cheese as possible. Sounds fun. The catch was that this altar was guarded by older boys with whips who would show no mercy. Boys could literally be beaten to death. Sounds f***ed. It was mini baby hell. Again, we at countries that don't exist anymore don't want to judge an ancient society by modern standards. Sure, from our comfy Western position, we may think that whipping kids to death because of cheese sounds a bit harsh, but we need to think of people at the time. Maybe they thought that was a good idea. Well, other Greek states at the time thought this sounded f too. The alternative was a Spartan staple of molasomas, or black soup, made of pig's blood and vinegar. After having tried the food at a mess meal, one visitor to Sparta said... Now I know why they're so keen to die. <sighs> to be honest, Ed, I could sure go for an altar of death cheese around about now. If you survived the whole Mascarpone massacre ordeal, things just got worse. From that point on, it was more military training and less reading and writing. So it was just double getting the beaten out of you every day studies? Yes, and music and dancing. What? Yeah, th this is what's surprising about Sparta. You'd think that the whole order of the day would be psycho, macho, uber male stuff. But, and this may come as news to some, what it means to be masculine isn't eternally written in stone. As with growing their hair long and luxuriant and male sexual relationships, Sparta had a lot of customs that to us would seem at odds with their military machismo. But singing and dancing were actually all about that. Phalanxes required a huge amount of coordination and group rhythm and learning to dance together what the Spartans called war music helped reinforce that. In certain battles, the Spartan line would literally advance to music. Thucydides, the Athenian war historian, wrote... 
A standing institution in their army has nothing to do with religion. Rather, it is intended to make them advance evenly without breaking their order, as large armies customarily do at the moment of engagement. Spartan phalanxes could move and turn sharply in coordination, a big boon in battle. It's like southern USA line dancing, except all the dancers were heavily armed and dangerous. So it's exactly like southern USA line dancing. And while singing and dancing may not seem like fight training to us, it was essential to the Spartans. Paint the fence, wax the floor, defrag my hard drive. But Sensei Miyagi, how is this helping? Apparently it'll make my laptop run faster. At the age of 20, Spartan men faced election to common messes or dining clubs where they'd eat and spend most of their time. These messes weren't just boys' clubs. Their purpose was to encourage social cohesion by mixing young and old, rich and poor, divisions that in other Greek societies were creating huge social problems. When we say Spartan, we think of unflashy, minimalist living, and that's what the Spartans encouraged. They were very keen to promote an egalitarian society where the differences between rich and poor were almost invisible. If Spartans were around today, they'd be fighting hanging around with other men and queuing up on Sundays to get into Ikea. Yeah, and they'd probably leave the putting it together bits to the helots. Yeah. Hang on, who were these helots? In 650 BC, the Spartans marched west out of their Teletubby Paradise Valley through the Tahitas Mountains and conquered the neighbouring Mycenaeans. Despite being Greek and speaking the same language as the Spartans, with some even suggesting they had the same Dorian culture, the Mycenaeans were turned into a slave population known as the Helots. And Sparta lived off their labour for another 300 years. The Helots did all the work and the Spartans concentrated on beefing themselves up and stabbing people with spears. Now this may have been a bit of a secret shame for the Spartans. You see, slavery was common in ancient Greece, but slaves were supposed to be non-Greek-speaking barbarians. They weren't supposed to be your Greek neighbours. To add insult to injury, every year the Spartans officially declared war on the Helots, just to keep everyone on their toes and mark them out as the enemy within. A possible reason why the Spartans treated the Helots especially poorly may have been because they were so closely related. By being extra horrible, they could dehumanise the Helots and remind everybody that these were filthy slaves. Personally, I find this highly objectionable. The idea of taking someone that's basically a family member and making them your slave is reprehensible. Oh, Ed, can I have a night off editing, please? My fingers are so bruised from all this trimming and slicing and dicing. Get back to work! Ah! Where did you get that whip? Amazon. That makes sense. So the Helots did the farming and slave work, while a disenfranchised class of non-citizen perioikoi did the trading and commerce that supplied Sparta and kept its economy afloat. Who were the perioikoi? A disenfranchised class of non-citizens who did the trading and commerce. I only ask questions. I don't listen to answers. Okay! Despite supposing to be against that kind of thing, there's quite a lot of surviving Spartan pottery and art which may well have been produced by the perioikoi. Who were the perioikoi? Oh, for God's sakes. The unique way that Sparta was set up meant that they could devote all their time to warfare. The Spartans were the only Greek city-state who could regularly field professional hoplites. 
A what light? A hoplite, a soldier. Most city-states relied on citizens who would generally farm for most of the year and then would drop the plough and pick up the spear when they were called to fight. But Sparta's society meant that its full-time warrior citizen could devote themselves to the phalanx. Foul what? The phalanx was like the heavily armoured formation which was bristling with spears. Most phalanxes were 50 men across and 8 men deep. The job of the people at the back was to push the front forward. The job of the front few rows was to stab the opposing phalanx with their eight-foot spears. That's 2.5 metres for our metric listeners. CTDEA, available in imperial countries, metric countries and the UK, where they haven't really decided yet. Hang on a minute, Ed. I thought ancient battles were all individual combat and guys doing cool but unnecessary sword-spinning tricks for no reason and then seeing their arch enemy and going, oh, you are so dead, mate. Well, that definitely had been a thing at one point, but the phalanx had replaced all of that. Most battles were shields against shields and a whole lot of pushing, grunting and hacking. Think secondary school rugby scrum with 50% more blood and carnage. But the point of the phalanx is that it was the ultimate team building exercise. You all had to trust each other. The only way a phalanx worked was if everybody knew what they had to do and when. If there was any hint of running away, the whole phalanx would break, so you had to have total faith in each other. The word hoplite probably comes from hoplon, a large concave shield. This was held in the left arm of every hoplite, but, and this is the interesting bit, it didn't actually primarily protect you, it protected your neighbour. So you had to trust that the hoplite next to you had your back, or your front in this case. And while it's cool to gas on about military formations that resemble giant Godzilla-like hedgehogs, there is a reason I'm telling you about this. Because the phalanx wasn't just a nifty formation, it was the entire basis of Spartan society. A society that said that the individual wasn't worth a thing. What was more important was the community. And if everybody played their role as they had been instructed, the outcome would be success, both on and off the battlefield. Sparta was effectively one big phalanx. See, the aim of Sparta was to build nothing less than a utopia. Yeah, but not for the helots or the perioikoi or anyone not Spartan. It's not a utopia, Phil. It's a utopia. All Greeks were obsessed with law, order and stability, and they all had their system to try and achieve the same ends. Athens gave democracy a whirl, Sparta built a military society, but it was one designed with social cohesion in mind. Yeah, so family values, all that stuff. Eh, not quite. In fact, the value of the family in Spartan society was basically zero. Spartan men didn't live with their family, they lived and ate with their comrades in giant messes. When you came of age in Spartan society, you were hopefully elected to a mess where you spent your time and paid your subscription. If you weren't elected to a Spartan mess, you were a total wrong one that people would cross the street to avoid. In fact, any act that went against strict Spartan society could make you an outcast. Cowardice in battle would have you branded as a trembler. If you have mixed blood, you are a mofax. If you failed to pay your mess fees, then shame on you. And if you were in your 30s and unmarried... That was basically a criminal act. 
Unmarried men were stripped naked in winter and forced to sing a song about how they were basically massive wasters. Ah, so if we lived in ancient Sparta, you and I would be seen as total outcasts for not being married with kids. Yes, it's a situation our mother would very much approve of. Well, except for the being stripped naked in winter and forced to sing a song about being wasters, right? Uh, I don't know. Ah, let's find out. Hello? Oh, hi, Mum. Hi. Yeah, it's your son, Hello. Phil, here. Yeah. Uh, so, so, Mum, I just wanted to ask you, what do you feel about Ed and I being unmarried in our 30s? I think you should be stripped naked in winter and forced to sing a song about being basically a pair of massive wasters. Oh. Oh, OK. All right, uh, see you at Christmas. But that said, getting married wasn't about the social acceptability of white picket fences. It was just about making more Spartans. You see, marital bliss was non-existent. Spartan men weren't married until they were between 25 and 30 years old. On the wedding night, the bride was expected to shave her head and dress like a boy. Their husband would visit them, they'd have something like simulated or actual rape, and then he'd return to his mess. This arrangement could go on for weeks, months, or even years. Sounds pretty dysfunctional. While it's hard to say exactly why this was the norm, it's clear that Spartan men just weren't used to women. Their whole life had been spent in the company of men. As teenagers, their first sexual experience would be with a man, so sex with the new wife was possibly more palatable if she looked like a boy. Sir, you're a chap, are you, Bob? Oh, yes, sir. You wouldn't say you were a girl at all? Aside from early years with their mother, women were almost a foreign entity. And mothers were not encouraged to be doting. Their whole job in life was to raise a tough, non-mother lover. There's a great example from sayings of Spartan women. A man complained his sword was too short. His mother replied... Take a step forward, it'll be long enough. Before their sons went to battle, mothers were to urge their sons to come back... With your shield or on it. There's a story of a son that ran away from a battle. Upon seeing his mother, she hitched up her skirt and asked, Are you going to crawl back in there where you came from, are you? (laughs) If I lived in Sparta, I'd give it some serious thought. Now, culture is a powerful thing, but how many Spartan mothers stuck to this ideal is hard to say. I mean, like, that's the thing about culture. Were the Victorians really morally pure? Or was such heavy stock put on sexual purity because everybody was riddled with syphilis? And speaking of unexpected sexual practices, the one thing we've glossed over with the upbringing of Spartan males was enforced sexual relationships with older men. Every young teenager was paired with an older mentor. It was the duty of the older men to provide for the younger's material needs. It was the job of the young man to provide for the older man's other needs. What do you mean? Delivering messages, sewing on buttons, that kind of thing? In the Spartan system, homosexuality was compulsory. So when we say that newly married men weren't used to the company of women, we mean it in every sense. Western society has a long tradition of slurring homosexuality as feminine or deviance. In Spartan society, not sleeping with men was seen as highly suspect. In fact, sleeping with men was the manly thing to do. 
And with all these men sleeping with each other, you think that the women were being ignored? Not at all. Left to their own devices, it was perfectly acceptable for women to find their own pleasure. For one thing, women were allowed to sleep with other men who weren't their husband without getting any slurs over infidelity. For quite another, Spartan society was one of the few places where lesbian sex was perfectly acceptable. Sisters were doing it for themselves. Other Greek observers looked at this setup and were totally disgusted slash obviously aroused. Everybody's talking about hop flies and top flies, crop flies with shop flies, chop flies and pop flies, stop flies and stop flies, militarism, ism, 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 ism. All we are saying is give Greeks for And since we've set the stage for a society perfectly attuned to war, let's talk about war. Establishing the supremacy of the phalanx. The Spartan war machine were able to demonstrate the supremacy of their phalanx society during the Battle of Thermopylae in 479 BC. What was the Battle of Thermopylae slash Thermopylae? This could be one of the most famous battles in history and was the moment when a Greek alliance tried to stop a massive Persian invasion by defending a narrow pass between some mountains and the sea. These were known as gates, a pass only about two chariots wide. Thermopylae actually means hot gates and it got pretty hot there during 479 BC. It was a well-picked spot, since the narrow pass meant Persia couldn't use their feared cavalry and Persian numerical advantage, which was probably something like 10 to 1, was significantly reduced, since only a handful of soldiers could actually fight at any one time. Ooh, wait, Ed, I know about this. So this is when only 300 Spartans stopped thousands of Persians by being really muscular and all oiled up and all having amazing beards. I remember this because it was in a film, right, where these 300 brave Spartans are there, right? And what was amazing about these 300 warriors is that there were only 300 of them. God, just 300. It's an amazing film. I think it was called Some Spartans. Um, Actually, it was called 300, but don't worry about it because it's historically inaccurate. There were probably 300 Spartans at that battle, but actually they were a part of a larger army of 7,000 Greeks. And then at the last stand, there were about 2,000 Greeks. So not 300. Okay, but, but the important thing is that loads of Greeks joined forces, defeated the Persian Empire and saved Greece. No, they lost. Why are you making me read this script where I keep being wrong? It's an ancient Greek method called the Socratic method. What's that? It's where you make up a conversation where you appear wise and the other person seems like a thicky because you get to write the script. But the important thing is that it delayed the invading force for a week and then was followed by the defeat of the Persians in a naval battle at Salamis. But Thermopylae wasn't a battle to be won. In fact, we're told the Spartans were fully aware they'd lose, which is why they only picked warriors who already had sons. Oh, wait, so you and I would be fine? Yep, but that ritual humiliation seems pretty sweet now. Hey, it's the only life we know. Cheers! But Spartans were apparently fine with the idea of dying in battle. In fact, they were told to actively seek what they called a beautiful death. 
So weirdly erotic was battle for the Spartans that before fighting they'd pray to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. What a bunch of emos. But the Spartans were super religious. The army wouldn't cross a river without doing an animal sacrifice. The same goes for marching out to war. They'd ask the oracle of Delphi about everything. And if they didn't get a favourable answer, they wouldn't fight. It's amazing that they were able to get anywhere. The first time the Persians invaded in 490 BC, the Spartans didn't even turn up to the Battle of Marathon because the phases of the moon just looked a bit iffy. And the reason they only sent 300 to Thermopylae was apparently because it clashed with a religious festival. Dear King Leonidas, Unfortunately, young Demaratus can't come to battle to be massacred today due to a religious festival. Signed, Spartan Mother. Anyway, after three days of fighting, apparently the Persian king Xerxes was tipped off about a mountain pass that would let them surround the Greeks. King Leonidas apparently then dismissed the other Greek allies and prepared his Spartans for their last stand. Every morning before fighting, Spartan warriors stripped naked and exercised before oiling their bodies, combing each other's long hair, then writing their names on sticks and attaching them to their arms so they could be identified. Basically, ancient Greek dog tags. When Xerxes heard about this, he laughed and said, What a bunch of wangs! Or something more historically appropriate. But as we've said, the Spartans were killed to a man and the Persians were only seriously delayed by the Athenian navy. So you could either comb your hair and hope for a particularly erotic death or you could, you know, buy a boat. But Thermopylae wasn't supposed to be about winning or so we're told. It was supposed to be a giant advert for what Sparta was all about. Discipline, duty and properly conditioned hair. But when all was said and done, the victory left Greece with two dominant powers with very different ideas about things. On the one hand, there was Sparta, untouchable land army and disciplined military society. And on the other, there was Athens, dominant naval power, great traders and a democracy. Where Sparta was one society working together to attain the perfect phalanx, the Athenians had to rely on the people power of the rowers in their triremes that sunk the Persians. It was the common people who had made Athens great, and they would be represented in the idea of democracy. After defeating the Persians, it was outgoing Athens that took over leadership of the Greek alliance. It built up its navy, its walls, and promoted its democratic values. Sparta hated walls. Walls defined cities. Cities encouraged democracy, and the Spartans were distrustful of democracy. It's a bit like how the USA and USSR allied to defeat Nazi Germany, but then built up their own alliances after. As the saying goes, history repeats itself, once as tragedy, twice as countries that don't exist anymore. Countries that don't exist anymore. While Athens had its allies, Sparta had its fans too. For some states, the idea of democracy seemed too volatile to achieve order. Many looked at the Spartan system of order, duty and the common good and liked what they saw. In 465 BC, an earthquake hit Sparta, causing massive damage. The Helots saw their opportunity, revolted, and fortified Mount Messini and held out against the Spartans. Not able to storm the fortifications, Sparta asked Athens for help, who sent them some siege equipment. 
Rather annoyingly, Sparta changed its mind and refused the help. They were worried that Athens was likely to spread its crazy ideas of democracy and freedom and this might appeal to the Mycenaeans. I can't think why. This annoyed Athens so much they talked about it to Sparta's enemies and even set up escaped helots in their own city on Athenian territory. By 431 BC... This is war! That's it. Yes, it's war. Correct, it's war. The Peloponnesian War broke out. Why was it called the Peloponnesian War? The war fought between the Athenians, Spartans and their allies took place on the peninsula called the Peloponnese. It's the southern bit of Greece that looks like a tatty ghost. Sparta got straight down to business and marched into Athenian territory, getting to within seven miles of Athens itself. And while the Athenians couldn't match the Spartans on land, they could trounce them on the waves. Athens had built itself walls surrounding the city, with a further seven-mile stretch of double walls connecting it to its port of Piraeus. This basically meant that Athens could just keep resupplying itself, and Sparta couldn't ever successfully siege Athens. But not long after Athens was hit by a plague which wiped out a third of its population and led Spartans to believe that the gods were on their side. But in 425 BC, it was Sparta's turn to suffer a blow. With the help of former Spartan slaves, the Athenians captured the port of Pylos, not far away from Sparta's homeland. Sparta sent an army to blockade the Athenians, but this was countered when Athens sent a large fleet to break the Spartan blockade. The Spartan force found themselves trapped on the island of Spacteria for two months, harassed by Athenian archers and javelin throwers. It had only been 50 years since King Leonidas and his Spartans sacrificed themselves for Spartan honour, so when the Athenians asked them if they'd like to surrender, the expectation was that the Spartans would comb their hair and go for the beautiful death. But instead, the Spartan soldiers said, Oh yes please! This was a massive blow to Spartan morale and Spartan PR. It seemed like the end of Spartan invincibility. The 120 Spartans that surrendered were taken back to Athens as hostages and paraded around the streets. This rattled the Spartans so much that they sued for peace, but the Athenians, sensing weakness, said, No. But things swung back the other way in 415 BC. As weird as it may seem, Sparta had some fans in Athens. One of them, a playboy named Alcibiades, was facing charges of sacrilege in Athens and fled to Sparta. Though being a party animal, he soon endeared himself in Sparta by decking himself out in Spartan rags, eating a basic diet and, presumably, sharing some on-fleek hair care tips. He convinced the Spartans to help out the Dorian Greek colony of Syracuse in Sicily. They had been fighting the Athenians and were inspired to fight back with Spartan support. The Athenians beat a fighting retreat, only to be trapped by the Spartan navy and defeated. The irony of all this is that it was Alcibiades who convinced Athens to invade Sicily in the first place. Anyway, the Spartans and Syracusians took 7,000 Athenian prisoners, but rather than taking them back to Sparta and parading them around for a bit of fun, the Athenian prisoners were set to work in quarries where they were starved, beaten and baked in the sun. The only Athenians that survived were the ones who could perform the plays of Euripides, a favourite on Syracuse. 
those lucky survivors who passed this high-stakes Athenians Got Talent were sold into slavery. It was another outsider, Lysander, who dealt the final blow to Athens. Who was Lysander? Lysander was half Spartan and half Helot, which made him a Mofax or a mixed blood. Although he'd gone through the Spartan Agogi system, he still felt he had a lot to prove, and he knew that Sparta and its allies would never defeat the Athenians unless they could do it on the water. Lysander went to the Persian Empire and asked for money to build a navy. Now, although the Persians had only been enemies fairly recently, they were always delighted to see Greek powers fighting each other, so they were happy to hand over loads of gold. With this new largesse, Lysander built a navy, partly with the expertise of Athenian defectors, and then turned pirate, trouncing the Athenians ship to ship before successfully blockading Athens itself. In 405 AD, the Athenian fleet were destroyed, and Sparta imposed their terms on Athens, which were the removal of democratic government, the reduction of the Athenian navy to three ships, and the destruction of those pesky city walls. The Spartans then massacred Athenian citizens, including Alcibiades, who had subsequently got bored of minimalist living and returned to the Athenian party scene. Sparta had won. It had defeated Athens and was now the master of Greece. They had proven that their system was best. They were favoured by the gods. And yes, this is Sparta. Except it sort of wasn't anymore. Sparta worked best when it was insular, when it stuck to its land and knew what it was about. This is why Spartan society was highly xenophobic. Spartans were great, and outsiders were divs, and that was that. Unfortunately for Sparta, its troops had seen the Greek world, bagged themselves lots of riches, and had brought home their taste for the luxuries they were supposed to be dead against. Sparta, the most consciously conservative nation that perhaps has ever existed, was changing. Now, Phil, you may have heard of the Oracle of Delphi. Yeah, nice car. No, I'm, I'm talking about the seer, the huh. Pythia, an old woman in virgin's clothes. Uh, like a Game of Thrones t-shirt? Yeah, it could be. But this woman would eat hallucinogenic plants and babble away. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah. She lives in Streatham, doesn't she? Yep. Possibly, but more famously Delphi. So these hopped up babbles were then translated into elegant verse by a priest, and that was basically the oracle. The Spartans were hooked on the babbles of the oracle of Delphi. Anyway, at Delphi, the victorious Lysander did a very unspartan thing. He commissioned 30 large bronze statues of gods and men, with himself being crowned by Poseidon. That kind of putting yourself on par with the god's showy aggrandizement was not very Sparta. I'm sure Leonidas himself would have said, This isn't Sparta! Now, don't get me wrong. The Spartans weren't beyond talking themselves up. They were the same people who said that their royal lines descended from the divine Heracles himself. But Poseidon crowning you while your entourage looks on, in bronze, it's not very Spartan. And then, in 400 BC, the shroomed-up Oracle of Delphi gave them a grim warning. She warned of a crippled kingship. You see, at that time, one of the kings had died, and it seemed likely that his son, Latahedus, should take the throne. 
The king also had a half-brother, Agesilaus, who was born lame. Now, under the Spartan system, he should have been hoyed into the place of rejection, but he was spared that fate because he was royal. And despite his disability, Agesilaus thrived in the agogi, coming out as a top killer. Wow. It's almost like Spartans were wrong about disability. Yeah, I'm getting that too. Agesilaus had a powerful friend, or should we say ex-lover, our show-off Lysander, who twisted the oracle's message. He said that when the oracle meant a crippled kingship, she wasn't referring to the literally crippled would-be king. No, she meant that the kingship would be crippled by Latahedus. Wait a minute, how did Lysander manage this? He said that the Athenian playboy Alcibiades was really Latahedus' father, which would make him illegitimate and would thereby make him cripple the kingship. Oh. Lysander was the Johnny Cochran of his day. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. So despite the flashy Lysander's backing, Agesilaus comes to the throne but is an arch-conservative. He led by example, even wearing a ragged cloak. And despite getting him on the throne, Lysander's bronze statue antics were getting on Agesilaus's nerves, and he demanded that Lysander should serve at his table. Realising that the tables had turned, Lysander fled, but was then killed in battle. Among his papers was found proof of his radicalism. Lysander seemed to be planning a new form of government for the Spartans. Sparta was still to have kings, but these kings could be elected. It looked like Lysander was positioning himself as the first elected king. Agesilaus was very keen to publish it to show just what a wrong Lysander had been, but he was advised not to on the basis that the proposal might get popular support. And this wasn't the only conspiracy that Agesilaus was faced with. Kinnadin was a lower-grade Spartan and was found to be in league with certain Spartans, Perioikoi and Helots to overthrow the Spartan system. Failing to overthrow the Spartan system, Kinnadin and his supporters were thrown into deep caverns. But all this throwing babies and people into geological formations was taking its toll on Sparta. Put simply, Sparta was running out of Spartans. Around the time of Thermopylae, there were thought to be around 10,000 Spartan warriors. 100 years later, and after a great many wars, that number had been whittled down to a thousand. Ironically, Sparta was at times forced to free helots in return for their military service. They were enlisting people they were technically supposed to be at war with to fight wars for them. Desperate times. Although the most powerful state in Greece, Sparta was unable and unwilling to field men to fight and demanded their allies to cough up men to fight for them. This led to dangerous tensions with other powers. At a conference of 371 BC, the thin-skinned Agesilaus got eggy about the deference showed to the representative from Thebes, an ally of Sparta. He got so angry that he grabbed treaties that had been signed and crossed out the name of Thebes. Yes, it's war! Twenty days later, Sparta fought Thebes at Lefka. Sparta was only able to field 700 Spartans plus 1,300 helots and allies. The Thebans put out an army of 6,000 highly irritated Thebans in phalanxes 50 men deep. 
This sheer weight of numbers crushed Sparta. During the battle, 400 Spartans were killed, half its full fighting population. Sparta was effectively finished as a fighting force. The Thebans then went on the rampage, storming into Sparta's peaceful lands and freeing their helots. Gaining their liberty, the Mycenaeans built six miles of walls around their city. Unlike the Spartans, they saw the value of a sturdy wall. Its workforce gone and its military now basically non-existent, Sparta limped on. The last recorded instance of Agesilaus was him as an 80-year-old mercenary fighting in Egypt, trying to raise a few coins for Sparta. Egyptians came down to the shore to grab a glimpse of this legendary king, but found a broken old man in a cloak and just said, LOL, facepalm. The Spartans were so weak that in the generations to follow, they neither had the power to resist Philip II of Macedon or to join his son Alexander the Great in his conquest of Persia. Alexander, in fact, sent 300 suits of hoplite armour to Athens with the inscription, Alexander, son of Philip and the Greeks, except Sparta, dedicated these spoils from the barbarians of Asia. Yeesh. Awkward. But it wasn't just lack of available Spartans. In the 300s BC, inequality was on the rise. There actually were available Spartan warriors, but they just couldn't afford to pay their mess fees. The equality Sparta prided itself upon hadn't survived either. But this wasn't the total end of Sparta. In the centuries to follow, the Laconians tried to get themselves going again, but without the huge Mycenaean slave population propping up their way of life, there was no recreating their military society. For example, in 227 BC, King Cleomenes III went into reform mode, doling out land and offering freedom and citizenship to thousands of Perioiki and Laconian helots for hard, cold cash. He also did away with the other wings of government and tried to restore the mess system and the agogi. Now, unfortunately, these reforms went nowhere and he was defeated in battle in 222 BC and died a few years later. Later rulers did very unspartan things like trading and even building a girly wall. Sparta just wasn't Sparta anymore. This isn't Sparta! Spin forward 200 years and Sparta was visited by Emperor Augustus who was doing a spot of tourism in the area. By this time, Spartan culture had been turned into a bit of a theme park where dances were performed and young Spartan boys were flogged to death for the amusement of some fat Roman tourists. Conclusion. Now, generally speaking, on countries that don't exist anymore, we cover places that most people don't know about and that are lost to history. But that isn't Sparta. So why did we cover it at all? Well, the state of Sparta was just too damn interesting not to, and too full of wild contradictions. It was an autocratic society which pushed personal austerity. It preached equality for the few at the expense of the many. Its outlook was insular and hostile to foreigners, yet it sought the leadership of the entire Greek world. It was the most conservative of nations, but possibly the most progressive when it came to women and homosexuality. It was a utopia for some and a nightmare for others. And since the Renaissance, we've never forgotten about it. It was a shining light to as varying Spartan enthusiasts as Rousseau, Victorian public schools, and even Nazi Germany. 
It was one of the first countries to define citizenship and to attach rights and responsibilities to that idea. But the exclusivity of that citizenship and its apparently child-murdering pursuit of physical perfection meant that it could never have the population needed to fight for its very survival. For all its vaunted principles of austerity, order and military fitness, these ideals were built on the backs of slaves, and when the slaves broke free, Sparta imploded. Although Sparta bested Athens in the Peloponnesian War, democratic Athens was the long-term winner in the War of Ideas, at least at this point in our history. And although Sparta's singular experiment may have failed, we just can't look away. And that's why it quite firmly takes its place on the hallowed canon of countries that don't exist anymore. Stab it! You wake up late for Agoki, man, you don't want to go! You ask your mum, please, but she still says no! the final main episode of series two of countries that don't exist anymore but it's not the final episode because next time we're going to be joined by two giants from the world of history podcasting to talk about sparta so do not miss it yes don't you dare and if you have any questions about sparta you can email us ctdeapod at gmail.com go to our website ctdeapod.com or follow us on the socials twitter at ctdeapod and facebook is the same and please do give us a nice five star rating if you wouldn't mind on the old apple podcast that's where we need it the most until next time we'll see you on Countries that don't exist anymore They used to exist but not anymore Now you know what this podcast is for It's countries that don't exist Real